Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Ladies and gentlemen, William Hemsworth. Coffee Show. My name is William Hemsworth. It is great to be with you here on a Saturday morning where I'm at, or maybe where you are. It's Saturday afternoon. Well, welcome to the show. Well, my apologies for last week. Last week I had a kind of a migraine headache, so I had a interview that I did a couple months back with our friend Ken Litchfield, which you can hear on the network here on Friday mornings. And we talked about the divinity of Christ, so I hope you learned a lot from that. But today, let's get on to today's show. Tomorrow, We celebrate Pentecost. It's hard to believe that this year is just flying by. Let's talk about today's saint of the day. He is St. Augustine, but he's not the St. Augustine we normally think of. He's St. Augustine of Canterbury. He's known as the Apostle of England. So in the year 596, 40 monks set out from Rome to evangelize the Anglo-Saxons in England. And St. Augustine of Canterbury was their leader, and he was prior of their monastery over in Rome. When they reached France, they had heard stories of the Anglo-Saxons and of their, I guess, of the treacheries of the English Channel and all that. And Augustine returned to Rome and to the Pope who had sent them, and Saint, uh, Pope St. Saint Gregory the Great only reassured him that their fears were groundless. So he was reassuring and said, hey, this is what you've got to do. And so Augustine went out again. And this time they crossed the English Channel and they landed in the territory of Kent, which was ruled by King Ethelbert, which happened to be a pagan who was married to a Christian. Now, Ethelbert received them. Um, he set up a residence for them at Canterbury. And within a year, on Pentecost Sunday in 597, he was baptized. Now, after being consecrated a bishop in France, Augustine returned to Canterbury, where he founded the Diocese of Canterbury. He constructed a church and monastery uh, near where the present cathedral began in 1070 now stands. And as the faith spread, there were additional cathedrals and dioceses established in London and Rochester. Now, his work was sometimes... Sometimes his work didn't meet with the greatest success, if you will, and attempts to reconcile the Anglo-Saxon Christians with the original Britain Christians um, sometimes ended in failure. And Augustine failed to convince the Britons to give up certain Celtic customs that were at variance with the church. Now, he was patient, and Augustine heeded some missionary principles that were quite enlightened for the time. And they were suggested by Pope Gregory the Great, um, somewhere to purify rather than destroy pagan temples and customs, uh, to let pagan rites and festivals be transformed into Christian feasts, and to retain local customs as far as possible. And this success, um, Augustine was met with some success by the time of his death in 605, which was only eight years after he arrived in England. And these laid the groundwork for the eventual conversion of England. And that's why St. Augustine of Canterbury is known as the Apostle of England. So St. Augustine of Canterbury, pray for us, especially as we evangelize and try to spread the message of the faith. All right, my friends, let's get to the mass readings for tomorrow, because there is so much meat on the bone in the readings for Pentecost Sunday. 
So our first reading actually comes from the book of Acts, you know, just like all the readings in Easter time. But let's pay special attention here. But these are, we're going to read in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. And it says, when the time for Pentecost was fulfilled, they were all in one place together. And suddenly there came from the sky a noise like a strong driving wind and it filled the entire house in which they were. Then there appeared to them tongues as a fire, which parted and came to rest on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them to proclaim. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven, staying in Jerusalem. At this sound, they gathered in a large crowd, but they were confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded, and in amazement they asked, Are not all these people who were speaking Galileans? Then how does each of us hear them in his native language? We are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, inhabitants of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya near Cyrene, as well as travelers from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, yet we hear them speaking in our own tongues of the mighty acts of God. Uh, Amen. Let's talk about Pentecost for a minute, though, because Pentecost is not a uniquely Christian feast. It's actually one of the three pilgrim feasts that uh, were required by adult men of Israel to travel to Jerusalem. And we could read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 16. And so it was a harvest festival celebrated 50 years. I almost said 50 years, not quite. So 50 days after Passover. And this is when the first loaves of bread from the spring harvest were made from the wheat crop, and they were dedicated as the first fruits of offerings to the Lord. And that was dictated in Leviticus chapter 23. So over time, according to Scott Hahn, theological significance was added to its agricultural focus. Pentecost became a celebration of the Torah given to Israel on Mount Sinai. So there's a lot happening here with Pentecost. Let's go to verse 2 for a moment, though. This mighty wind that we read about. This mighty wind and this visible fire. Now, this loud, fiery descent of the Spirit brings to mind, it's very reminiscent of what happens in the book of Exodus, you know, on Mount Sinai, when Moses heads up to talk to God to get the Ten Commandments, and you can read about that in Exodus chapter 19. So there's a lot of Old Testament significance in this reading from the book of Acts. And I think sometimes that gets lost on us. And it's just another one of those things that links the Old Testament and New Testament together in such a powerful way. And if we don't have a, at least a rudimentary understanding of the Old Testament, a lot of these things, maybe we take for granted, we lose the significance that this is the new covenant. This is a new covenant and established by Christ. And all these men are together. And they're speaking in tongues. Now, it isn't like some of the things I see online. You know, I should have bought a Hyundai type stuff. No, these are different languages. These are foreign languages um, that are being understood by the help of the Holy Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, for example, the Tower of Babel, right? So they're trying to build this huge, this huge building, trying to reach God. This is totally different. Here... God is not confusing languages. He's using the Holy Spirit to communicate the gospel in other languages. They just happen to understand them. So it's a Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Um, so let's pay attention to these readings. All right, our second reading comes from 1 Corinthians. Maybe one second to flip my book around here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this is uh, verses 3b through 7 and 12 through 13. And St. Paul writes, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different forms of service, but the same Lord. There are different workings, but the same God who produces all of them and everyone. To each individual, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for some benefit. As a body is one, 
though it has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free persons, we are all given to, the, to drink of one spirit. So, my friends, we are all given a spiritual gift. We're, we're baptized. We become part of God's family. We are adopted sons and daughters of God, no matter what our background may be. And St. Paul emphasizes this at the end of today's reading. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, there's one spirit. St. Paul would later write, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So each of us is given a gift by the Holy Spirit for benefit of the church. And there's lots of different spiritual gifts out there. Uh, maybe your gift is administration. Okay, maybe you're good at organizing. There's all kinds of things out there. The point is, let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's utilize our gift for the good of the church, for the good of the ministry, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ far and wide. Let's use those spiritual gifts to correct false teaching. Let's do it to evangelize. Let's do it to teach. No gift is insignificant. Maybe you're out there thinking, you know what? Maybe you're out there thinking, I don't have the gift of gab. To be honest, neither do I. I'm the most introverted person you'll ever going to meet. My students and also people on this program and on my YouTube channel find that hilarious, but it's true. But when you let the Holy Spirit work through you, he can work through anyone. It doesn't matter. If you open your heart to the Holy Spirit and let him work, he will work. Just be open to it and don't hinder him. Let him do the work. All right. I wanted to get to today's gospel reading because today's gospel reading is very powerful. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it. So it comes from John chapter 20. So the end of John's gospel, verses 19 through 23. And he writes, on the evening of the first day of the week when the doors were locked, when the disciples were where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. Wow, a lot of stuff happening in today's gospel, my friends. All right. So this is on the first Easter. Jesus has risen from the dead. Amen. Hallelujah. And he's coming to visit the disciples. Now, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, the point here, the point is that Jesus is raised. Not simply with a body, but with the same body that he was crucified with, and he died a couple days late, a few days later. Um, sorry, a few days earlier. With um, he carries those marks of that sacrifice of his crucifixion when he ascends into heaven, and he says, "Peace, shalom." This was a traditional Hebrew greeting. Now, what Jesus does next is very profound and i think sometimes it gets lost on us he breathed on them now when i'm in my classroom teaching middle schoolers if someone were to walk up to someone and breathe on them it's probably cause for a fight that's not the case here this anticipates the coming of the holy spirit at pentecost that's going to take place 50 days later but here also we have the risen humanity of Jesus that's be, that has become a sacrament, if you will, sacrament of the divine spirit. Not only that, go back all the way back to the book of Genesis. How was man created? God breathed his spirit into them. Here's Jesus when he resurrects, breathing that spirit into the apostles. 
And so Jesus uses an expression here that going all the way back, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Not only that, Jesus says something very interesting here. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven. This is the this is Jesus establishing the sacrament of reconciliation. Now, when I was a Protestant, you know, I was always taught that this verse meant that only means that the apostles, the disciples, have the authority to recognize when someone accepted the gospel. That's not what this cha- that's not what this says, though. You see, as a Protestant, I was taught the plain meaning, the perspicuity of Scripture. To say that the, the disciples only had the authority to recognize when the gospel was accepted here is not what it says. Jesus is very explicit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven. Whose sins you retain are retained. Jesus gave his disciples the authority to forgive sins in his name. So I think sometimes we, um, we lose track of that. The Council of Trent connects this passage as well with the institution of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, which is passed on to the successors of the apostles and their priests, if you will. So I know we have a couple friends on the line here. Uh, we have John and we have our, uh, our friend Ken. I want to bring them on the line here one second. Maybe the computer is being a little weird today. Here we go. John and Ken, how are you all doing today? Good morning. Good morning, William. How are you doing? Hey, doing good. Do you guys have anything to add to these readings? I know you guys have a lot more knowledge than I do. <laughs> no. No, I, I, I sit back in, the back in the back seat while you two speak. I'm just uh, enthralled by the things that you have. To, I would like you to expound on something, though, because I know it's something that's a, a very confusing for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, Pentecost is a big day. And in 10 years, we're going to celebrate, when we celebrate Pentecost, we'll celebrate the 2000th anniversary of the Catholic Church. So it's a big day. But on Pentecost, the apostles, and they were there with uh, Mother Mary, and they received the Holy Spirit in a profound and visible way. But in the reading that you just uh, showed from John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. I'd really like to hear you you two gentlemen expound on the difference in the way the Holy Spirit is received by the apostles in this intimate private encounter and the way that the Holy Spirit is received on Pentecost Sunday. All right. Ken, do you want to take a stab at it? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Glad to be on here with you, William and John. Uh, Let's see. So the Holy Spirit has been revealed to us in the Bible in multiple ways. Uh, When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in the form of a dove. Uh, And we see the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles in uh, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 2, (laughs) pardon me, uh, is, you know, tongues of fire and in John chapter 20, you know, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his apostles by breathing on them. Um, so the Holy Spirit can be revealed in many different ways. I was just talking with my friend over in Pakistan. His name is Kashith, and uh, he was saying that they're um, – oh, it was like – I'm not sure if it was his priest or, you know, some Protestant preacher over there. Um, you know, brought in like a propane torch, you know, to symbolize the Holy Spirit as fire, you know, to actually, you know, give a good visual visual image of like the fire coming upon the apostles. And he thought it was, you know, a potentially hazardous thing to uh, bring into the church, but um, right, it's uh, it was a you know a good visual aid if you handle it correctly. Um, so, but the main thing is like, you know, 
in the upper room, as John chapter 20 tells us, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his apostles by breathing on them, and he also gives them the authority to forgive sins. And that is like a special thing that the apostles receive that uh, is different than what they received at Pentecost. Yeah, that makes sense because here, like you said, they're giving that authority. But come Pentecost, uh, Peter, well, and, and the book of Acts tells us this, how they're kind of hiding away because they're afraid. But then the spirit comes upon them. They get this new boldness. Peter preaches this awesome sermon, if you will, and 3,000 people come into the church that day. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess one way of putting it, is this was like a, a private thing where Jesus is conferring this authority, and then later on they get the boldness to go out and start exercising the ministry. I guess that's how I would put it. What do you What do you think, Ken? Is that my off base or? No, I think you have a good point there. Um, like after his resurrection, Jesus gives the apostles the Holy Spirit by breathing on them, which is a you know a more calm, gentle way of doing it. Um, but then. You know, like it says in Acts chapter 2, they're hiding away in the upper room and, you know, the Holy Spirit comes on, upon them, you know, as a flame, you know, fire. And right. we have a saying that, you know, you light a fire under somebody to get them motivated. And, you know, it is perhaps related to how the Holy Spirit came upon them as a source of, as a fire and actually motivated them to get out of their hiding spot and go out and preach. Right. Gentlemen, I don't think that anybody could deny that the Peter pre-Pentecost and the Peter post-Pentecost were two very different people in terms of fortitude, in terms of uh, brassness, uh, in terms of all of these things. I don't think anybody could deny that. And I, and I think our, our, uh, some of our, our Protestant brothers and sisters have real difficulty with this, and, and, and it, it's it's audacious to say that a human being, that God is going to give the human being the power to forgive sins or to retain sins, to, to reconcile us with God or to not reconcile us with God. It sounds pretty audacious. It is that power of the Holy Spirit working in them, and Jesus guaranteed this. When he said, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, th- but they, some people really have a problem with God giving this awesome power to human beings. And, and, and it does sound pretty preposterous, pretty audacious. But then think about it. It's no more audacious than the fact that God gave human beings the power to create life, that God creates life through uh, an eternal an immortal human being is created through the cooperation of, of uh, a man and a woman. God is just unsearchable. And I think that, that we, we need to accept it. We need to accept what he's taught us in his word and not try to get our minds around it. Cause getting our minds around it is just impossible. Isn't it? Yes. It's such an awesome, awesome gift. Um, you know, we can't fully comprehend it. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the ability for a man and woman to create a new human life together, uh, you know, like that's obviously a gift from God. And, you know, it's really an awesome thing that, you know, he has entrusted that to us. And, you know, especially in our modern society, you know, the intention, the original purpose of the sexual union has been so far lost um, you know, from uh, the idea of, of using contraception. You know, sex became just a, a form of entertainment and not, you know, this powerful gift from God. We've so much forgotten that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in today's culture. Um I can't tell you it's, I don't know, our, our culture is so over-sexualized. It's, I hate to use the term not even funny because it really isn't funny. It's just flat out sad at this point. Yeah. 
because Absolutely. everyone's identity is, seems to be caught up in sex, and that's not what our identity is. Sex is a gift from God, absolutely, but it's not what our identities are, and I think people lose sight of that. But mm-hmm. one second. My earphones got all crazy. All right. All right, Ken, I just sent you a message real quick, if you could check it out. I just want to make sure I'm respecting your time here. Um, let's see, you sent me a message via what phone? On Messenger. Um, on Facebook Messenger? Yes. Or something else? Ah, Facebook Messenger. There we go. Uh, let's see. Yes. Um, prepared to talk about the Magisterium. (laughs) I have a whole lot of material prepared for that. (laughs) All right. But we can talk about the other stuff, too. Uh, we can save it for another time if you want. No problem. Well, no, I think I think um, I think I think Pentecost is a good segue into the magisterium, especially with Peter giving the first homily in in church history, anyway. But uh, maybe you can tell our listeners, Ken, what exactly is the magisterium? Okay. Well, for us Catholics, the magisterium is the teaching authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, especially as given by the bishops and the Pope. Um, It is the official and authoritative teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And the thing is, is like everybody has a magisterium. Um, For our Protestant brothers and sisters, they may say that they don't have a magisterium, but they all have an interpretation of the Bible that was invented by some guy who is their magisterium. And then they even... You know, they may even go so far as like, well, I interpret the Bible for myself, and in which case they are their own magisterium or their own pope. So the question is, you know, whether an individual or some Protestant preacher or the pope has the authority from God to give an authoritative interpretation of the Bible. Right. Now, what is the – and you're absolutely right. There are – I mean, we could look on any of those Facebook theology groups and we could see that there is a built-in magisterium somewhere in all of these interpretations. But mm-hmm. what is the, what's the biblical basis of the magisterium? If you could, can you maybe, is there any, uh, is there like a sequence from Old Testament to New and so forth? Uh, yes, it goes all the way back, you wrote, really to Noah. Um, the, the question you know, well, the thing, like, Protestants have a hard time believing that, you know, God can um, give a, an infallible teaching through a man. That would be the way I would say it, you know. Uh, lots of people can claim that they have a Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of the Bible or a Holy Spirit-inspired revelation that they, something they learned through the Bible, Um you can make that kind of claim, but you know you'd be hard pressed to find any Protestant that would claim that they have an infallible interpretation of the Bible, even if they think that they really know the Bible and they know it right. <laughs> um, so that's the the thing that we have to um, make a case for. It's like, can God speak infallibly through a man? Um, so going all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, where God tells Noah to build an ark, and, you know, they're in a dry place, and, you know, even his sons and his wife, you know, think it's a kind of a crazy idea. Um, I saw a movie once where they, you know, they tell Noah, like, well, can we build it like at night so people don't laugh at us over building an ark here in the <laughs> desert? <laughs> And he's like, no, we just have to build the ark. Uh, and, you know, the sons, they don't say to Noah, well, well, where does that say in the Bible that we're supposed to build an ark? Right. Because, you know, the first five books of Moses hadn't even been written yet. You know, that's another 2,000 years down the road. But God spoke to Moses and or to Noah here, and um, it was an infallible teaching from God that they had to build the ark. And so that is a foundation for the uh, 
the idea that God can speak infallibly through a man. Um, and then in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham to leave the land of Ur and go to the promised land. And, you know, Abraham and the rest of his tribe, you know, they don't say, well, where is that in the Bible that we're supposed to leave and go to this promised land? And where is it? You know, that's not in the Bible, but God spoke to Abram and it was an infallible teaching from God that they needed to go to the promised land. And Abraham becomes like the first prefigurement of Jesus um, when he leads his tribe out of the land of Ur and heads to the promised land um, because Jesus is leading us to the promised land of heaven. And also God asks Abram to offer his son in sacrifice, um, his only son. And again, that relates back to God the Father who offered his only son for our salvation. Right. Now, I know you mentioned a few Old Testament things. And um, how, about, how about the New Testament? Because some Protestants will try to find the – they'll try to base a lot of their evidence based on the New Testament, you know, the New Testament church, the church as seen in the book of Acts – what are some things in the New Testament that'll say, hey, here is the magisterium at work? Right. Um, let's see. Well, starting in Acts chapter 1 even, um, you know, if, if we want to, like, pursue it like from, like, a Protestant saying, you know, well, I want to be a part of that uh, New Testament church that started in the book of Acts. Well, in Acts chapter 1, Peter and the rest of the apostles, they meet in the upper room. And who is it that says we need to appoint somebody to replace Judas? It's mm. Peter. Um, yes. Some some people like to say that you know James was the bishop of Jerusalem, so you know he was the leader of the church. Well, okay, we can say James was the bishop of Jerusalem, but here, uh, right after Jesus' death and ascension into heaven. Uh, resurrection and then ascension into heaven. You know, it's Peter that says we have to replace Judas. Uh, and uh, he quotes from the Psalms where it says, you know, let another uh, his office take. Um, mm -hmm. So that shows us that the apostles recognized that they had an office with successors, which is just like the Levite priesthood that had successors. You know, the Levites that Moses appointed, you know, weren't the same guys at the time of Jesus. You know, um, all through the generations after Moses, you know, there were successors in the Levite tribe that served in the temple. So okay. we understand from the book of Acts chapter 1 that there's successors for the apostles and that Peter is the head of the apostles. Well, I think and we even see a big part. I see Peter really active in the early pages of Acts. I mean, we already talked about how, you know, he gave the first sermon and 3,000 came into the church. Um, mm -hmm. He's the one that performed the first recorded healing in Acts 3. Uh, Peter and John were arrested to account for their actions, and Peter addressed, it was Peter that addressed the Sanhedrin. Um, I mean, Peter, Peter, Peter is, is in the first, you know, 15 chapters of Acts. And so exactly. it, it's, it's amazing to me how some people will say, like you said, that James was the leader. But where was James in all in these first 15 chapters of Acts? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, I think they like to point to James as the leader because in Acts chapter 15, it's James that reads the decree uh, right. from the Council of Jerusalem. Right. No, and, and, but oh, go ahead. And I've, I've heard that point, but what 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 would be some of the flaws in that line of thinking, though, Ken? Right. Um, well, you know, we can accept that you know. 
James is the the bishop of Jerusalem, um, but it doesn't necessarily make him the head of the church. Uh, as we read in Acts chapter 15, that you know there's a whole lot of dispute, and but after a lot of discussion, uh, Peter gets up and says that talks about how he saw the Holy Spirit come upon Cornelius and his family and they weren't baptized and they weren't Jews that confirmed to him that God can work with anybody and they don't have to become Jews first uh, and they don't even have to be baptized first. But of course, Peter does baptize them right after he sees that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so that kind of, you know, puts an end to all the discussion, and then they put together the decree um, that James later reads out, and then copies are sent out with authoritative men to read to other people. They didn't just pu- didn't just publish it on the Vatican website and let everybody go read it, <laughs> because of course that wasn't around. Right. The other thing it really is that it was, but yeah, right, it wasn't around quite yet. Now, for, for those listening, by no means are we trying to minimize what James did. Um, James obviously is a key figure, but he did it in union with Peter. Do we have that right, Ken? Correct. Um, okay. I believe it's in Colossians where uh, Paul writes, you know, he went to Jerusalem to read, to receive the right hand of fellowship from uh, Peter, James, and John. Um, and how he stayed with them for like two weeks to make sure he had the correct doctrine, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we could say at that time the church was centered in Jerusalem as opposed to Rome, but, you know, later on when Peter ends up in Rome and even Paul ends up in Rome, you know, Rome becomes the primary church, and especially after Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D., Now, what role has the what role has the magisterium had? I mean, we talked a little about the Old Testament. We've talked some of the New Testament. Let's go outside of sacred scripture. What role has the magisterium had outside of scripture itself? Um, well, you know, you have your local magisterium with the uh, you know your local bishop who has the authority from the pope to regulate the church in his area. He's responsible for proper doctrine in his diocese or archdiocese. And, uh, but as disputes come up, you know, they would hold councils to determine correct doctrine. Before Christianity was legal, you know, we have the anti-Nicene councils where they would sort things out uh, locally because, you know, Christianity is messy. People have different opinions and Mm -hmm. we have to have correct doctrine established. And, you know, even after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, the Judaizers are still trying to push the Jewish works of the law on the Gentile Christians. And that's why Paul's always talking about we're not saved by the works of the law. We're saved by faith in Jesus. Um, right. But when he abbreviates that as just the law or just works, you know, Protestants, because they can only see the Bible, uh, you know, say, well, you see, we're not saved by works and we're not saved by the law. <laughs> and so they think works have nothing to do with their salvation. Right. But the key is the works of the law. That's the key. <laughs> so, right. We don't have to be, you know, and, and thank God for this. You know, if I'm, when I became a Christian when I was 13 years old, you know, thank God I didn't have to get, you know, circumcision wasn't a requirement. That would have been a painful proposition, you know. And right. I can't imagine what those people would have, were going through. I don't know. I got off track there, Ken. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> Um, but we see as early as like, you know, 90 AD, uh, the church in Corinth had a problem and they, uh, sent a letter to the church in Rome. Um, you know, they didn't necessarily write it to the Pope, 
because, you know, we were going through popes pretty quickly at that time because Christianity was illegal and, you know, the Roman emperors were just killing off the leaders of the church there. Uh, but they sent a letter to the church in Rome and knowing that, you know, whoever's in charge of that church in Rome can help sort out this dispute they have in Corinth. In 107 AD, when Ignatius of Antioch is on his way to Rome to be fed to the lions, you know, he writes about how Rome, the church in Rome, presides over Christianity in his letter to the Romans. Uh, so even before the Council of Nicaea, you know, it's understood that the church in Rome presides over Christianity. And... You know, whenever there's a dispute, somebody has to be, you know, the bottom line where the buck stops, you know? You mentioned a few examples already. But mm -hmm. even going, even to the present day, I mean, when there's something going on in the world, you know, non-Christians even look to Rome. So what does the Catholic Church have to say about this? Like even to this day, it's like it seems to be embedded in our hearts, if you will. I don't. Uh, that's probably not the right term, but there needs to be some kind um, of bottom line, some kind of authority. Like what is right, what is wrong. Um, let's look. Let's look to the church. What does a church have to say? Um, right. So what, what are some? There's a lot of misconceptions about the magisterium out there. Can you address some of those common misconceptions you've run into in your ministry? Um, right. Well, because the Catholic Church teaches that the councils and the Pope can teach infallibly, you know, they are taught this uh, interpretation that, you know, that these men are perfect and, you know, they never make a mistake. They never teach the wrong thing. But, that's not what the Catholic Church teaches. The Catholic Church teaches that uh, councils can establish dogmas that are required for Catholics to believe in order to be a member of the Catholic Church. And the Pope has the authority to decree dogmas on his own, uh, but it's not like he just wakes up one morning and comes up with a new idea and writes it out and says, okay, this is a new dogma for you. Uh, it's a very rare thing that the Pope teaches in an infallible dogma and uh, that becomes binding on all Catholics. And it's only done, you know, in council with, you know, the cardinals and proper research into church history and the Bible and things like that. So right. it's that's always that's an important point, Ken. I just want to talk about that one more second, if I could. When, when, the, when the Pope declares something infallible, uh, like the Assumption of Mary, for example, right. it's not something he just woke up and was like, hey, I like that. No, it's something that has been taught in one way or another for a long time. Maybe it's coming under some scrutiny, if you will, from different areas, and there's a lot of research done, a lot of prayer that happens. It's not just like the Pope wakes up and is like, hey, this is ex cathedra. That's not how that works, right? right. Okay. Right. The Pope doesn't, uh, as I was saying, doesn't wake up one day and come up with a new idea. Exactly. Um, okay. And, of course, the councils are called, and the Pope speaks ex cathedra, when there's a problem in the church and, you know, things need proper doctrine needs to be established so that we can all be on the same page. Um, and, you know, the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary is something, you know, that was taught in the church, you know, at least as far back as 120 AD. And it wasn't considered a new teaching at that time. It's just, that's the oldest writing that we have about it. Uh, and, you know, there's actually two different traditions on the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and that's why the Catholic Church teaches that, yes, Mary is, was assumed into heaven body and soul. Um, there is no official teaching on exactly how that happened. 
but it is something that has been known from the beginning and is shown to us even in the book of Revelation, um, you know, the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. We see Mary in heaven. All right. So any, any other missing any other misconceptions or anything to add about the magisterium? I know you've done a lot of work on it. I know we've talked about it before, but I think it was for an hour and a half. <laughs> so I know we're, yeah. we're cutting some stuff out here. But is there any, anything right. major that maybe we haven't touched on yet? Um, well, something that came up recently on Facebook was, you know, a guy said that, you know, why did it have to take until – uh, the Council of Trent for the Catholic Church to establish the canon of Scripture. <laughs> mm. and, you know, of course, you know, he's showing a large lack of knowledge on, you know, Catholic history, saying that, you know, the Council of Trent established the canon of Scripture when actually, you know, Pope um, Innocent, Pope Damasus, that's right, in um, around 382 A.D., uh, established a canon of Scripture for the church in Rome, and they sent copies of that canon out to other churches, you know, for their use. Um, And so, you know, all the way back in 382 that the Catholic Church established the canon of Scripture. But it was because of the Protestant Reformation where, you know, Luther wanted to downgrade, you know, books that are, are acceptable in the New Testament and the deuterocanonical books. And he wanted to downgrade those in the Bible. So the Catholic Church, you know, had to firmly establish that, no, these are the books that are inspired. These are uh, the ones that we know uh, can be read at Mass and do hold the truth of the Catholic faith. And that's what Pope Damasus was uh, establishing in 382. It's like, okay, these are the books that we can read during the liturgy at church. He wasn't so much, you know, establishing these are the only ones that are inspired or something like that. Right, because I, I think there was uh, reading a dog. What book was it? Uh, it? There was a story of I think the Apocalypse of Peter being read at mass. And then, of course, there was Marcion or Martian who totally butchered the New Testament. Um, and so there was a need for the canon to be established. You know, so Pope Dennis is like, these are – Council of Rome got together. These are the books. It was ratified later on, the Council of Carthage. I mean, it, like I said, it was nothing new. It wasn't just the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was a mm-hmm. response to what was going on with the Reformation but the canon had been fixed for quite a period of time before that. And that was all the act of the magisterium. Right. So. And even as, you know, before 382 uh, in Laodicea, they had a local council and at that council, they rejected uh, the book of revelation by John. And they didn't think that was suitable for reading, you know, during the liturgy of the mass. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet the Pope, you know, established that, yes, it is suitable for reading during the Mass, and Hippo and Carthage, of course, approved it, and then in 1441 at the Council of Florence, it was also approved. Um, In 419, the bishop uh, in Gaul uh, received a letter from the Pope, you know, that had our canon of Scripture on it, at that time. So it was all well established very early on. No, I think it's 405 for the letter from Pope Innocent. Uh, 419, the Council of Carthage uh, again reviewed the canon of Scripture and then they sent their canon list, which is the same one that we have today, uh, to the Bishop of Rome for approval. Again, confirming that the church in Rome had was the final authority in Christianity. They didn't send their letter to the Bishop of Jerusalem or the Bishop of Antioch or the Bishop of Constantinople. They sent it to Rome. Yep. Exactly. Kid, one more question. 
Sure. What do you what would you say to people who say that the magisterium tells Catholics what to what to believe about the Bible, like what each verse means, etc. Right. Well, the Catholic Church doesn't <laughs> we don't have like a a book that says, you know, every verse of the Bible, this is what it means. Um there are Protestant well there's Bibles called like the Amplified Bible that, you know, adds words in um and you know even whole sentences explaining parts of the Bible as you're reading through the Bible. But that's somebody's opinion of the Bible. And that would be kind of like um that person's magisterium because somebody is telling them what the Bible means as they're reading through that amplified Bible. Um but for the Catholic Church what the church does is establish boundaries around the Bible that allows us to interpret the Bible within those boundaries. Just like in a football game, you know, there's inbounds and out of bounds. Uh, Same thing like with tennis, volleyball, even baseball, you know, there's the foul line and balls that are outside the foul line, you know, are out of play. So the Catholic church just establishes, you know, or an area that you can interpret the Bible in. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that Protestants do this too. Um, like the West, the Westminster Confession of Faith has those boundaries. The London Baptist Confession of Faith has those boundaries. Um, Luther's Catechism has those boundaries. All these places have these boundaries, but somehow they want to single out the Catholic Church. For having for for doing that, I would, I right? Know, being it, it's it's kind of interesting when you think about it that way because they'll deny it, but at the same time, it's totally true. You could buy, you could you could look at those thing those confessions online, and there it is. It has those boundaries there. Exactly. You know, like I said, everybody has a magisterium, whether they want to admit it or not, and you know, even with your you know independent fundamentalist Baptist church, you know, somebody is establishing how they interpret the Bible. And if you, you know, get to a point where you disagree with that interpretation, um, you might be discussing it with your pastor and you both might be claiming that, well, the Holy Spirit is telling me that this is the interpretation that's correct. And there's nobody higher than you too that can say, you know, no, this is the correct interpretation, and no, that's the wrong interpretation. Um, right. So you end up with another church split, and you know some people follow this guy, and some people follow that guy. So, what, what would what would be the role of the magisterium in today's day and age? Because some people may say that it's an outdated concept. What is its role today? Right. <laughs> Well, you know, especially in our modern times, everybody wants to be their own pope. Right. Uh, it's been said that, you know, there's no shortage of, uh, well, there's a shortage of, you know, people wanting to be a priest, but uh, no shortage of people that want to be pope. Uh, oh, amen. People yes. want to. Totally agree. <laughs> people want to, you know, live their own way and not have to listen to somebody else. Um, and. You know, God allows us to go our own way, but, you know, we do it at our own peril. Um, so you're better to follow God than to follow your own whims. Um, so, you know, the church continues to provide guidance to us, you know, through the Pope, through the councils. Uh, here in the United States, we have the United States Council of Catholic Bishops that, you know, gives us guidance in how to live the faith here in the U.S. And it's a good idea to have, you know, councils, regional councils of bishops because the culture is different around the world. And just a teaching that works in an American culture doesn't necessarily work in a culture in Central Africa or in the Middle East, um, you know, in Europe. Right. That's why we need a council of bishops to guide, give local guidance. And each bishop is responsible for his own diocese. 
and then each bishop will ultimately answer to Rome if need be, right? Right. Um, each bishop is subject to his council of bishops and or the Pope in Rome, you know, depending on where they fit in the hierarchy. And, of course, in the end, they are all, you know, going to be held accountable by God on their judgment day. Um, you know, they have authority and, you know, they have great responsibility with that authority. And that's why we right. need to pray for them. Yes. We're quick to criticize, but slow to pray for them, and that's unfortunate. So please pray for the bishops every day. Just include them in your prayers. Well, Ken, thanks for Absolutely. coming on today. I really appreciate it. And my apologies for not getting with you this week. It was the last week of school. It was kind of hectic. But, uh, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever I can to help out. I'm not, uh, you know... I don't have to be the center of attention. Attention. Um, I just I'm here to serve, and I do what I can. And, and while you're on, can you tell us about your show on on the network? <laughs> well, I'd love to tell you about my show, uh, except I've, I've had two failed launches so far. So oh no. <laughs> Hopefully, you know we can actually get it up and going. Um, just having a hard time getting a, a microphone connection into the system. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, I'm going to be doing an apologetic show where I will be offering uh, explanations of the Catholic faith and uh, perhaps, you know, um, talking about, you know, questions I've answered online to uh, help share my answers with other people. Um, again, it's all in service to God. It's not about me. I'm just the conduit that God works through. Well, well, Ken, thanks for, thanks for all you do. Um, you're doing great work out there. So keep it up, and thanks again. Praying for you. Thanks. Uh, hopefully, maybe uh, now that you're off for summer break, you can uh, come back on Gary Masuda's show for a change. Um, I'm actually booked on there on Tuesday. Okay, good for you. So, yeah, I won't so be on You've had me three weeks in a row because you've been having a hard time getting people on the show. <laughs> Yeah, so hopefully I'll be on. Hopefully I'll be on there. I have a seven-week break, so hopefully I can be on there a few times before I have to go back. So that'll be that'll be fun. Yeah, that, that'll be great. All right, well, take care, Ken. John, thanks, can, thanks for having me on, William. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime, Ken. Anytime, John. Can you give us a heads up on what's coming up uh, on on the next couple of days on the network, if you could? Yes, tonight we have uh, Terry Delp. Uh, and Terry Delp is going to be talking about uh, statistics versus uh, success stories tonight. It's very, very interesting. Since his program, uh, the the Colby House and the and the other programs that he's involved been involved in with prison ministry, uh, has been involved with helping former inmates integrate back into the community. William, they have a 0% recidivism. (laughs) You know a word I'm trying to say. That's one of those words that's just really hard to pronounce. (laughs) They have a 0% rate of repeat offenders. That's That's unprecedented. That's unprecedented. It's it's almost, it's borderline miraculous. Uh, And what Terry Delp and his and his program has done and what these uh, uh, Deacon Dennis and these people have done into helping these people reform and integrate back into the community. William, it's, it's, it's the gospel. It's Matthew 25. Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me, you ministered to me. Um, And it's just so, uh, miraculous and uh, it's just so wonderful and that's tonight at 7 and then uh, tomorrow at 5 uh, we have the Catholicism Rock show and that's our, our basically our partnership with the website Catholicism Rocks and let's face it our our faith is wonderful it's, it's not this dark morose you know thing that people think that it is it's wonderful to be a Catholic, and it's something that we should celebrate. And then on Monday, 
we have uh, the new night of Deb Rojas and the uh, the Tangled Knot, and it just she's a certified professional psychotherapist and count a counselor, but she understands the whole person. She understands the whole four persons that this whole network is based on. You can't help a person if you don't understand the four persons, the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual aspects of a human being. And then on Thursday, we have uh, Dr. Fred Boley in his uncounting show, and he's expanding on the same concept of just exactly why traditional counseling doesn't work because they don't recognize the four persons. And then we circle it around on Friday. We bring back Luke Haskell, and uh, and his uh, apologetics program, and that's uh, assuming that earlier in the day, Ken Litchfield in his third attempt will be successful. We've had, like he said, some microphone issues. We really got a lot of good things going on in this network, and I'm just really, really thankful that there's so many people that are so passionate about our our wonderful faith that they're willing to get involved and, and try and share it with other people. And, and it's just a really a joy to me. And I know it is to you too. Yes. Amen. It's, it's fun to come on here and, and just talk about the faith. It's a lot of fun. Well, I'm going to close this out with prayer and uh, we'll get everyone on their weekend. In the, name of the father, son, Holy spirit, heavenly father, thank you for this time today. Just to get together, talk about, the great saint, uh, Augustine of Canterbury, the readings for Pentecost, and the magisterium that you established. Thank you for Ken for coming on and talking about the biblical basis, what the magisterium is, and how, it's, how it functions in the life of the church. Thank you for John and this network, and bless us all as we go forth and do your will. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Gentlemen, have a great day. Thank you very much. God bless. Happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. God bless. Happy Memorial Day. Thank you. You as well. Happy Memorial Day. Bye-bye.